Listen to the Word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. That's the reading of God's holy word. Now there's a lot packed into these first few verses of of 1 John, so we're spending a few weeks looking at these uh, particular passages to sort of unpack them a bit so we can get what we're intended to get out of them. As I noted previously, uh, 1 John is a letter which is profoundly encouraging uh, and as well potentially disturbing, profoundly encouraging and also potentially uh, disturbing. It's encouraging because it reminds us of all the things that are true and wonderful about our great salvation. It's also potentially disturbing and that it calls you and me to a deeper consideration of the reality of that salvation in our own personal experience. Now, it performs that latter service, that troubling or potentially disturbing purpose. It serves and performs that through a series of tests. And those tests, as I noted last week, are essentially of three kinds. They are the theological, the moral, and the relational. The theological, the moral, and the relational. And so doing it reminds us then of what genuine faith looks and sounds like. But remember, I am convinced that these tests that John will enumerate for us are not meant to scare us. They're not meant to scare us. They are meant to encourage us to restore lost assurance, not to serve as tests of exclusion, if you will. In other words, they're not given to us to cause us to doubt our salvation. Think of it this way. In the immediate context of this particular letter and these particular passages, the evidence suggests here that there were some who had been a part of the Christian fellowship who had left the fellowship. They left the fellowship of true believers because they felt they had discovered something that was missing in the teachings of Jesus passed on through John and the other apostles. It was sort of one of these, if you don't have this, you're not experiencing the full gospel. Now, you see illustrations of that today all the time, especially if you watch Christian networks on cable. People will say, if you don't have this particular thing, you're not experiencing the full meal that is available to you. Or there's more to Christianity and the gospel than you think. You need 
all the gospel. Now, if your assurance was low when you run into one of these people or you see them on television, you would drop to zero in your assurance of your salvation. Even if you had a relatively secure sense of your salvation, you would then begin to question its authenticity. The result, in effect, would be the same. A loss or a serious diminution of your assurance. So the departure and schism that was created by these people has left remaining Christians in a state, if you might call it, confusion and a subsequent loss or weakening of their assurance of faith in Christ. So to answer that challenge, the Apostle John stresses the truth of the message they have believed and all the implications of that truth for all of our lives as believers. So the question, of course, is how important is truth to the Apostle John? How important is truth to all the apostles? How important is truth to God? How important is truth to Jesus Christ himself? Why is the truthfulness of the gospel message so important and so critical? Truth seems to be a recurring theme in the Bible and in particular the New Testament. Paul writes, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Those who have gone out for the sake of the name, we ought to support people like these. They may be fellow workers for the truth. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except from me. So why so much talk about truth? about the truth. Why is that such a central concern in the New Testament? So this morning I want us to look at the three ways the truth matters in our lives as Christians. First of all, truth is the foundation of our fellowship. Truth as the purpose of our fellowship. Truth as ultimately the test of our fellowship. So truth as the foundation, the purpose, and the test of our fellowship. So first, the foundation of our fellowship, truth. Now, that word fellowship here uh, is in verse 3. You see it there. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with Him. In verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, this word fellowship, I believe, is a word that's easily bandied about in the church. And I think and oftentimes we sort of make it a, sort of a shallow idea. 
The significance of the very word fellowship and the experience that flows out of that, we make it more and more a social experience that we share together. In other words, where there's plenty of coffee and tea and good food, we're having fellowship. Now, that's how most of us typically think about fellowship in the New Testament. It's interesting to note that John rarely uses the word for fellowship. In fact, he only uses it in one letter, and he uses it four times, and that letter is 1 John. That term, fellowship, is, if you will, it's the concept of a, a mutual commitment to a common person, purpose. A mutual commitment to a common person and purpose. But there's even more than that. It's more than a mutual commitment to a common purpose. It, it suggests, if you will, a binding relationship created as people walk in the light as God is in the light. A binding relationship that as people walk in the light of God's truth, walk in the light because God is light. And that fellowship, once it's established, may then find expression in common purposes and commitments. Now, this is very important that we get the sequencing right here. The fellowship, once established, may then find expression in a common commitment to a purpose. In other words, it's the mutual experience of the light of God, of God's character and message, that generates and forms the basis of the common purpose and commitment we share. Notice the connection here in verses 3 and following. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. Notice, it's, what pro, it's what's proclaimed, what has been proclaimed that grounds the desired fellowship. And what is the message that has been proclaimed? Well, he tells us in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. You see, this is the difference between truth-based fellowship and fellowship based on something else. Truth-based fellowship and fellowship based, let us say, on common interests or compatible personality types. That's what John is drawing our attention to. In other words, you and I might go, hey, let's join that group because they cut the grass in downtown Crozet once a month and they have a soup kitchen over on the corner and they're giving out cold water on a hot day. Let's join up with that group. We can have real fellowship with that group. Now what you've done is you've made their common commitment to a common purpose the ground of your relationship to those people. And John is saying, whoa, church is often treated the same way. I like going to that church. Why? Because they have lots of covered suppers. Uh, they take in pregnant, uh, unwed pregnant women. Uh, they do all sorts of wonderful things. I want to join up with that group. They have great music. I want to join up with that group. And John is saying, you have gotten all wrong. You've gotten it all wrong here. In other words, true fellowship is about what? It's about our fellowship with God in the first instance and the shared task of spreading the word of life in the second instance. What message are we spreading anyway? That fellowship with God is possible now because of Jesus Christ. Notice what he's doing here. This is often all too neglected 
when we talk about Christian fellowship. Because unfortunately for many of us, many of those in the world who identify or self-identify as Christians, whatever that means today, I'm not sure, but who do self-identify as Christians, they define Christian fellowship as essentially Christian unity. Christian unity. In other words, not being divided. Not being divided. I like them. They never have arguments. They never discuss tough issues. And they have great coffee after church on Sunday. Someone once said, the best part about going to a Unitarian church is they have Starbucks coffee. Now, in modern experience, in modern experience, these pleas for unity, or fellowship as it is often called, are predicated on what? They're predicated on finding the lowest common denominator on which we might agree. And usually that entails keeping theology or doctrine out of it. So we agree on feeding the hungry, cutting the grass, housing the homeless, whatever it might be. But keep theology or doctrine or truth out of it. Now, all of those activities are, we could also say, goals which the gospel leads us to embrace as expressions of the love of Christ. Housing the homeless and feeding the hungry, of course, of course. But they cannot be the basis of our fellowship. Why? Because they cannot bear the weight Notice that John, who's obviously desirous of establishing true fellowship between himself and the other apostles and believers generally, where does he start? (laughs) He starts with theology. Theology. Doctrine. That's where he starts. He starts with the doctrine of God. He starts with the doctrine of Christ. He starts with truth. Verses 1 to 5 are pure theology. Pure theology. Every seminary student knows that when they study baby Greek, when I taught baby Greek, the first book of the Bible you read in Greek is what? 1 John. (laughs) Because it's a study in truth and in following Christ. And it's the simplest Greek of the New Testament. That's why you do it. Pure theology. He starts with pure theology. You would not want him to come to your Thanksgiving dinner. Because he's going to want to talk about the truth before he talks about the Super Bowl. What kind of God is this God we're talking about? Who is this Jesus? Very God, very man, all wrapped into one. What? Why did he enter human history the way he entered human history? These are the things he brings up right at the beginning of his letter. You notice last week I said he doesn't start with any of the frilly stuff. To all those believers here and there, and I, the Apostle John, who followed Jesus, and lo and behold, here it is. He goes right to the truth here, right to the truth. Fellowship with God is necessary to enjoy life eternally with God. But what God are we talking about? That's John's point. What kind of God are we talking about here? Are there lots of options? Pick the God of your choice out there. Is that what John is telling us? No, 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 no. 
Absolutely not. There is only one God and one Son, Jesus Christ. He says, this God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. That's a trembling statement, isn't it? If that doesn't make your knees buckle, then you don't really understand it. He is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Why is this so important? Why is it important that John starts where he starts here? You see, why can't shared experiences be the primary basis of our fellowship? We all get together because we've all had similar experiences. Well, then they can, you know, if we understand correctly what is meant by experience, we could say that. But we have to be very careful what we mean by experience that unites us together. You see, in the deepest sense of the meaning of experience as it relates to our salvation, that experience, get this, that experience is essentially the same thing for every follower of Christ. It is the same experience for every follower of Christ, for every believer. Now, why is it important that he says that and I say that? That it be the same experience for everyone. Well, if it wasn't the case, how could we test the authenticity of it? We can only test its authenticity by a normative standard shared by all. Against what standard could it be measured or tested unless there is one standard accepted by everyone? There must be some standard. What is it? Well, all true Christians have experienced the same truth John experienced. All true Christians have experienced the same truth that Paul experienced, that Peter experienced, that James experienced. It's because of that we are invited to have fellowship with them and with our Savior. You see, John is saying essentially here, come and have the same experience we've had. Come and have the same experience we've had. I marvel, and I've done a good bit of study on this, the history of renewal and revival. But I marvel at all the great revivals and awakenings that have occurred throughout the history of the church are essentially the same. The same message, the same result, the same thing experienced by the apostles themselves. I've even read many biographies of the great saints in church history. And I'm always fascinated by what? By how similar they are. Oh, I know the locations are different. The personalities can be very different. The influences on their lives can be strikingly different. But the experience of the truth of the gospel and Jesus are essentially the same. The effect of knowing Jesus is always the same. The message they embraced was always the same. The same as Paul, John, Peter, and James. Luther was converted in the 16th century. He began reading St. Augustine, who had been converted over a thousand years before he had. And what did Luther discover as he read St. Augustine? They both had the very same experience. The same thing happened to Augustine that a thousand years later happened to Luther. 
even though it was separated by a thousand years. And what happened to Augustine? He read someone who had lived 300 years before him, namely the Apostle Paul. And what did he discover? That the same message that Paul received, he was receiving exactly the same. Now, you've got to understand, and if you do any reading in church history, you'll discover that these people were extraordinarily different from each other. Personality, temperament, unbelievable differences between them. But they all had the very same experience. They heard and believed the same message. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't different points of entry, so to speak. Different experiences that lead us to a confrontation with Jesus Christ in the gospel. Of course there are. But when someone joins the church, what is my primary concern? What is my primary consideration? Tell me a really dramatic testimony. I want to hear a good one. In The Great Awakening... Jonathan Edwards, the great voice of the Great Awakening, the 18th century, there developed a policy among churches that one could only join a church or be a member of a church if they had a testimony that constrained belief. Now, that puts a lot of pressure on the testifier, doesn't it? I've got to constrain belief through my testimony. Now, this has infected Africa to a terrible degree. In Africa, when I was there in 1980, uh, yeah, 80. Anyway, I went there as a young seminary student with my, one of my dear professors, uh, the, probably the dearest professor I ever had in seminary. And we were at an all-night prayer meeting in Kampala in Uganda. Now, they'd suffered a lot of terror and persecution from Idi Amin, and they were suffering relatively the same thing under Tanzania's occupation of Uganda. So it was, you know, they couldn't win for losing. But nonetheless, they would have what they called keshas, and a kesha is an all-night prayer meeting. And so we here were these five white students from seminary in America, Presbyterians no less, and uh, the, uh, one of the local pastors was there, and they were mostly women, maybe 50, 60 women and men, small children. We were sitting in a big room, and it was dark outside. And so we were going to have this thing start, and it, well, the pastor leaned over to me. He said, we're going to want you guys to each one give your testimony. You know, and I kinda, some Presbyterians get real tight about that. But <clears throat> anyway, I want you to give your testimony. And, of course, you know, everybody knows, well, at least I know, that my testimony is supposed to be about Jesus Christ. And he said, but remember, if it isn't at least one hour long, no one will believe you. One hour long or no one will believe you. You see, that was the disease that infected the Great Awakening. In the Second Great Awakening, it was even worse. It was worse. So when someone joins your church or my church or your church, our church, Jesus' church, I'm not all that interested in how you came to Christ. I'm interested about what was it about the gospel that gripped your heart. That's what I want to know. What is the gospel after all? 
That's what I want you to tell me. And the answer, if it is correct, will always be the same. It will always be the same. I tell people when they give their testimonies of conversion, usually they don't listen to me, keep your personal history brief and get to the point. And that isn't because I want to save time. No one's going to get saved by listening about how you came to Jesus. They're going to get saved by hearing the gripping, powerful message of the gospel. That's how they get converted. You may entertain me with it, but no one's going to hear the gospel. It's buried amongst the debris of my experiences. Keep it brief. Get to the primary point. What is the primary point? It's Jesus Christ and the good news. That's the message that's important, not you and not me. My life history may not be very interesting to you. Probably isn't. Your life history probably isn't as interesting as you think it is. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. It's the central message of Jesus Christ that matters. It's the cross that matters. The importance of Christ and the cross for you and for me that matters. That is the supreme point that must always be made. That is what grounds our fellowship. That is what grounds everything John is saying. It is the objective truth conveyed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. John and the other apostles never said, Hey, come have an experience like I had. Come have my experience like I had. You know, I was going down this Damascus road. You wouldn't believe what happened to me. Don't you want to have the same experience? Come along with me and you may have that same experience too. There's a reason why Paul says, I made a commitment that the only thing I ever talk about is Jesus Christ and His cross. There's a reason he says that. The Holy Spirit told him to say it, but nonetheless, there's a reason for it. You don't declare your experience as normative. You declare something that is true as normative. John is declaring to us a message, a message from God himself, not from his imagination or anyone else's imagination. And the message is always the same. The truth it attests is always the same. It is always based on Christ and the life Christ offers to us. Christ, his person, his work, that is the beginning and the end of the message. The eternal life I seek and you seek and find is only found in that truth, which is God in Christ. That's all. And it always comes to me as a gift, free of charge. The only one who had to pay anything was Jesus. So whether you're smart or imagine yourself as smart or whether you're intellectually challenged, the message is the same. From the illiterate to the most exalted theoretician, it is the same message that changes a life. The experience will always be the same because the gospel is the same. It is true. It is the objective basis of everything else we do. The same gift that comes from the same giver, it will essentially always be the same. 
because of that, the experience can then be tested. It can be tested. It can be questioned. It can be reassured. That's why Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians 5, but test everything, hold fast what is good. And the standard by which we test the experience is what? The apostolic word itself, the word of God. So truth is the foundation of our fellowship. Secondly, truth is the purpose of our fellowship. Now, what do we mean by saying that truth is the purpose of our fellowship? I thought having fun was the purpose of our fellowship. Raising money was the purpose of our fellowship. Supporting missionaries was the purpose of our fellowship. I thought that's what the purpose of this fellowship was. Read verses 5 and 7 again. And this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. Notice here, the purpose of our fellowship is what? To know God. And God is fundamentally characterized here by light or truth. Truth and light are, in fact, parallels here. Living out the truth in verse 6 is paralleled by what? Walking in the light. Why light? Well, the primary function of light is what? To dispel darkness. Turn off the lights, no one can see. Turn on the lights, you can see. So light dispels darkness. In the Bible, there is a profoundly ethical dimension to that metaphor of light. God is light and is said to furnish us with ethical direction. In other words, the light, which is true, now gives us direction so we can see. In Isaiah 8, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Give attention to me, my people, and give me ear. Give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. In Proverbs 6, for these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light, and the corrections of discipline are the way of life. In the Old Testament, the word light appears 139 times at least. God made the light of the physical world that we experience every day. Genesis 1, he gave his people visual light, didn't he? As he led them out of bondage in Egypt in the Exodus. In the prayer, David extolled God's spiritual light, which dispels darkness from within. He said, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. So it's not simply the external light we can see with our eyes, but the internal darkness that is dispelled by the light of God, which enters into us as we come to know Jesus Christ. But David's last words, his last words, he praised the derivative radiance of one who rules in righteousness and the fear of God. In 2 Samuel, he said, He is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Ezra confirmed the same thing by praising God in prayer for what? For light he had been given. He says, Our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Even if he isn't taking your physical bondage away, You may be still a slave in Egypt, but internally and inwardly, he's giving you light so you can see the purpose of it all. You can see the glory of God. In the book of Job, God is revealed as the only source of light we need. He says, what is the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? The abode of light. 
darkness everywhere but the abode of light. Micah said, though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. You see, John's aware that those who call evil good and good evil, and there are plenty of them around then and there are plenty of them around now. Those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, he says their ways are not illumined by God and His light. Jesus said, I came into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. He urged, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. You see, John's here telling us to to walk in the light is to walk in the truth. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, both of whom are light. And what is the light we walk in? Well, it's first of all, the light of His grace, isn't it? Who were we before Christ? Well, Paul tells us we were those who were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that it was in them due to the hardness of their heart. But when the grace of God comes, it is as if a light is turned on. You see for the first time. He says in Ephesians 5, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see... Everything about me, everything about you, if you know Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus, everything about ourselves is now seen through the prism of God's light. And that light is His grace. My past, my present, my future, all of it is seen through the prism of the truth of the grace of God in Christ. How? He tells us in 2 Corinthians, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. This is the God we know now, the one who spoke and the world was formed. He says, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In other words, what He has done to you and to me is synonymous to the kind of power He used to create the world. He's done the same thing to you and to me. He has turned the light on. And the disclosure of the truth of God and its revealing truth about me. You see, that one of the beautiful things about the grace of God in Christ, which is told to us only in the good news of Christ, which is the gospel itself, is that that light, when it turns on, doesn't destroy me. And even today, When the light is shined on me in some dark corner of my life that I would rather keep dark, it doesn't destroy me. You see, I am now, you are now able to see your own darkness, your own sin, those pockets of your lives that you think are secrets, which they may be secrets before men, but they are not secrets before God. That light comes on. And when the first time that light comes on in a particular area of your life, what does it do? Well, it causes sorrow. It causes sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, you see. It causes sorrow, you see. Our, our eyes, why is, it, why is it so shocking to us? Why is it, oh, no, that's true of me? Yes. And why is that so difficult? Because, you see, our li- eyes are not accustomed to the light. Every time you wear sunglasses and you take them off, what happens? You go, boy, you kind of rub your eye a little bit, you know, kind of refocus a bit, right? 
Well, spiritually speaking, as Christians, we oftentimes continue to wear sunglasses. Now, if you're not a Christian, you've got the darkest pair of sunglasses that could ever be made by the hands of men. You might as well be blind. In fact, you are blind. You see, we've been wearing sunglasses, and now the glasses are taken off. When you become a Christian, the glasses are taken off, and boom, you see the truth. If you're a Christian and you're wearing sunglasses that simply dim the light, you take them off, oh, I need to readjust here. Because by nature we are accustomed to darkness, not light. So the purpose of our fellowship is knowing the truth, knowing God, knowing God's light. Thirdly, it's the test of our fellowship. In the first instance, it's the test of our fellowship with God, who is light. He says, this is the message. We have heard from him and declared to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does walking in the light mean then? How do we know if we are or are not walking in the light? It's obviously a good question. Well, if the light of God's grace in Christ is what we've come to know, certain things begin to change inside of us. I said earlier, our eyes are not accustomed to the light because we've been living for a long time in darkness. Well, now we have light, and among other things, we have a new heart for the things of God. I might have been scrupulously moral and very religious my entire life, but there may have never been any heart work going on in my life. I could be the most religious person in the community, have Sunday school pins for 30 years of successful attendance every Sunday, never miss the Sunday. Even when I made everybody else sick by being there, I didn't miss that Sunday. And when I go before Jesus on the throne of God, I'm going to stand there with my Sunday school pins. It's going to be amazing. So you might have been, I might have been, anyone might have been scrupulously religious and moral and overtly religious, but there may have never been any heart work going on there. There was no light of the truth of God in our works even. So what we did was every day we negotiated with the God I wanted to believe exists. I negotiated with the God I wanted to believe existed. And he would always applaud my performance. But you see, John is telling us the basis of our fellowship, the purpose of our fellowship is to get to know the real God, the true God. And that means that everything else must be seen in the light of that God, in the light of his truth, the light of his countenance. So we deal with the real God, the true God, every day now. Where once there was hypocrisy or pretentiousness, now... There is a sincere recognition of our sinfulness, our need for grace every day. So we actually do hunger and thirst after righteousness. We're no longer content with being great pretenders. We're no longer content with living in a world that doesn't really exist. We no longer dwell in darkness. Additionally, we now have a willingness to know and to be known as a result of walking in the light of God's grace and 
mercy. He says in chapter 3, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We're, we once determined where the light could shine and where the light couldn't shine. We're now willing to have the light shine wherever it will. Why? Why? Because we have the assurance, as Paul puts it in Romans eight thirty nine, that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So now I can have the light go wherever it wants to go, and I don't have to be in fear and trembling when it gets there. I'm no longer self-satisfied with my state before God. I'm disposed to learn whatever might cause me to change. Can you imagine going to a doctor? Well, what, what, what do you need, Michael? I want you to tell me what I want to hear, that I am perfectly healthy, my heart, boom, boom, boom. No bad cholesterol, blood pressure, perfect. MRI scan, nothing there. Michael, you are the picture of perfect health. Tell me what I want to hear. Who does that? Who goes to the doctor and says, tell me what I want to hear, that I'm great, I'm doing well, I'll live to a hundred if not more. No, you go to the doctor and you say, tell me the worst. Don't hide it from me, tell me the worst. And that's essentially the same thing we do with Jesus. We go to Jesus and say, Jesus, tell me the worst Because I know I'm worse than I ever thought I was. But that I'm also loved and embraced by a love that I could have never imagined possible. That's what you say. That's what you say. Jesus, tell me I'm a good guy. Jesus, tell me where I'm a failure. I can take it. For nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is you. Nothing. So our lives are now built around the truth. They're not built around falsehoods and self-deceptions. When we walk in the light of God's grace, we no longer take things as they simply appear to us. We look beneath the surface. Beneath the surface, after all, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We are naked to him. Our best suit, our best dress, means nothing. He sees what's there. And as we all know, it isn't pretty. So we now can ask, like the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You can never pray that prayer unless you know Jesus. Because if you do it without Jesus, you will be destroyed. If God kept an account of our iniquities, the psalmist, who could stand? No one could stand. So we know that we have a bias toward evil. That's part of the old nature we still possess. And we have a whole lot of experience with evil, don't we? Of course we do. But now we're no longer those in whom self-deception rules. David declares a blessing on these kinds of people where self-deception no longer rules. He says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I want the blessing of God. Well, do some heart searching. David knew a lot about self-deception. He was an expert at self-deception. And he was also an expert in the grace that exposes it. 
So he could say in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You see, the deceit was gone, and David is now standing in the light. So how can those things be true of our experience? How can we find solace in the words of Paul in Romans 8? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. John says in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. You see, the first thing to note, the first thing we have to note, is that we can never do any of this ourselves. We can never do any of this ourselves. You are never going to feel bad enough, repent enough, cry enough, work hard enough. It will never get you anywhere. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Old Charles Spurgeon, who always got it pretty much right. He said, no matter how clean we might make ourselves look, there still remains a fatal stain. You see, God cannot simply ignore sin. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. You see, someone must atone for me. Someone must pay the penalty I deserve. Someone must stand in my place. Someone must do this for me. And as Spurgeon said, brothers and sisters, that's why Jesus was taken to a tree. He was taken there for me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Why? So that in him, by faith, we might become the righteousness of God. Our fellowship with him, our union with him, by faith, grants us the benefits accruing from his sacrifice, his substitutionary life and death. I receive the benefit of that. No longer condemnation, but justification. See, that's the truth that defines our fellowship, or it ought to be. That is the truth that defines our fellowship with God and with each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this great, resounding truth that is available to us through your good news, through the very Word of God itself. We thank you for that. We praise you for that, that you have done the greatest work of all. You have saved those who hated you. You sacrificed your son for those who held their fist in your face. And by virtue of sending your son, we too now can be made and called the sons and daughters of God. Where once we had no fellowship with you, we were your enemies. Now we can actually call you our friend. We are the friends of God because of the grace available to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for that good news. Apply it to our hearts. Let the light shine where we would rather it not. And let it do so because we know we will not be rejected, but we will simply be changed into Jesus' image. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we ask your blessing on your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.